welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Adam Cronin. I'm Justin Clark. And today we're discussing the future of policing. That means we'll get into the underlying causes of police brutality, racial profiling, and qualified immunity in the American justice system. We'll also explore the difficult situations faced by police officers, as well as some realistic solutions for how to save lives, stop crimes, and end unnecessary violence against black Americans. And for context, if you know listeners are listening to this 10 years from now or 100 years from now, America is currently reeling from the aftermath of George Floyd's murder at the hands of Minneapolis police. Uh, George Floyd was suspected of using a counterfeit $20 bill to buy cigarettes, and the police came and had their knee on his neck for almost nine minutes, even as he was not being aggressive, he was begging for his life, and he did die of asphyxiation. So the outrage from that murder, as well as some other recent murders, including Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery, have led to protests in all 50 states and also in countries around the world with millions of people participating for more than two weeks now. So this is pretty monumental movement. And, you know, we haven't tallied the full numbers of, you know, how this is going to compare to March for Our Lives or the women's movement. But this is one of the biggest movements in modern history. And so we're going to get into all of that and and uh, paint a picture for the future. But first, Justin, I just got a lot, like to get a sense from you of how has everything been in, in Tennessee and, and what's the energy like? What's everything like over there? Yeah, um, so it depends on where you are. So in Nashville, for example, there are a ton of protests just like in every major city. Um, and I think for the most part, it's been relatively nonviolent. Um, there's been some looting and some, you know, some anarchy, but, you know, not that much, even in the big uh, cities. Um, in Chattanooga, it's been relatively tame as well. I think the most damage that was done is somebody tried to start a fire at the courthouse and shot fireworks into um, a crowd or something. But for the most part, no one's been hurt or anything. So mm-hmm. pretty tame relative to what I expect it's been in L.A., Yeah, well, you know, things get so sensationalized on social media that I've had some cousins thinking that it's just like lawless over here. And (laughs) there have definitely been some intense moments, but I think it's it's much more peaceful than the media makes it out to be. You know, there was a protest just in Culver City where I live yesterday and and uh, Maria and I walked through that for a while uh, just participating and. It, ha- it felt very peaceful. Like It felt like everyone was trying to effectuate positive change. And mm-hmm. so it, it, it has felt largely positive. Now, that's not to say that there haven't been some scary times and some you know looting and rioting that definitely I don't think anyone, anyone could, should condone. And part of what was really shocking for people in Los Angeles is that you had all of these police monitoring the protests that were peaceful and then in Santa Monica and Fairfax and Melrose, you had all of this looting going on, and it didn't seem like the police were responding nearly as quickly as they should have. Mm-hmm. You know, so they had lots of presence by the protests, but hardly any presence where the actual looting was going on. So mm-hmm. it, it's, it's a, a really complex situation because 
you can't really paint any of these groups with broad brushes. You know, it's like the people who are really protesting for Black Lives Matter are not necessarily the same people who are looting. And, but there may be some overlap, Uh, you know, it's similar to how there are not all, not all cops are bad. Like, I don't think that slogan of a cab, like all cops are bad or all cops are bastards. I think that's so the wrong approach because painting any group with a broad brush like that is, is not the right way to go. Um, but likewise, we shouldn't paint protesters all with the broad brush of they don't care about, you know, the businesses that they're looting. And so, you know, it's a very complex situation and I want to get into that. And, And I think for this episode, it's really important that we focus on the system and how we can improve the system rather than, you know, getting into like, who's right, who's wrong, you know, what are the different, um, Mm -hmm. you know, players involved, because when you make it easy for people to be a good person and do the right thing, when you have the proper incentives in place, Mm -hmm. then that's a totally different world than one where all the incentives are in place for you to do the wrong thing. And so anyways, we we should get into all that. And, And maybe the first place for us to start is diagnosing the problem of police brutality in America. Yeah, um, so I think this is um, pretty multifaceted, but there's been one particular um, set of data and one particular um, thing about the system that stuck out to me, and that's the training required to even become a police officer in the first place. So in the United States, in a lot of states, it's, it's different between agencies, but most law inform- enforcement agencies require about 20 to 25 weeks of training. That's less than it takes to become a barber in a lot of states. <laughs> and, and all that's required is a GED and going through the process. And I think ultimately what this does is it, it selects for a certain type of person, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit less educated, didn't really, didn't necessarily know what they wanted to do and just said, oh, well, this might be an easier thing And that's not all, you know, that's not the case for every single police officer, but it selects for that type of person more so than a person that's like, I really want to do well for society. Whereas other countries require two to three years, for example, or a bachelor's degree to get a, um, to go into uh, law enforcement. So that's the first thing that stuck out to me. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, Sweden, I've, I've heard, has like a three-year process of training and it includes all of these mm-hmm. psych evaluations and mm-hmm. you have to go through, it's not only the training of how to deal with people in combat situations, but there's a lot of training in sort of like the social worker side too, like how do you deal with people who have, uh, you know, mental challenges or they're drug addicts mm-hmm. and those are really tricky situations and actually the majority of situations where police use force are with addicts or with the mentally handicapped. So mm-hmm. I think you're right that a lot of uh, you know training could help with police officers. And I also think you're right that there's a little bit of a selection bias because just sort of the ethos of the American police officer is like a, you know, a rough and tumble warrior <laughs> hero. And uh-huh. a lot of the training is warrior style training. And interestingly, Minneapolis tried to 
change their training so it wasn't so like warrior style with like you know shooting drills and it, basically like football yeah. like hell week is kind of like how mm -hmm. their training is um, okay but the union actually pushed against that so they still allowed for the warrior style training in minneapolis yeah and you have to think about what that does just me mentally to the police officers going through this like they're probably preparing mentally for this insane thing that they're going to be doing and like this is war like always it just like primes them to kind of think that way and that ties right into the militarization of the police so if you think about like imagine you're a police officer and you're on like the front line with all these protesters yelling at you and now you also have like full-on like riot gear you're not looking people eye to eye you've got a face shield on you've got a mask You've got this heavy, bulky body armor. You know, you've got these armored trucks, these like major guns. That puts you in a different mindset than if you're, you know, the Norman Rockwell painting of like the cop with the gun on his holster, you know, hanging out mm. with like the little kid. It's like a totally yeah. different feeling. I mean, anyone who's put on a business suit, you can you instantly feel more like capable and refined just because you're wearing a business suit. And it's kind of the same <laughs> yeah. whatever like outfit you have. So. And, you know, there's really no need to militarize the police to the degree that we have. It's sort of, it, it, you know, it, it's another, a symptom of another issue, which is the military industrial complex of America, where every politician wants to increase the budget of the military and the police because they have powerful unions and they tend to reflect well on them in the eyes of voters. And mm -hmm. a lot of that spills over into police forces because they, have to spend the money somewhere or else they lose the budget. So they're just buying tanks and shit they don't need. And then they're like, oh, let's give it to the police because we've got more than we could ever actually use. I mean, modern wars don't even really use tanks and stuff like that. Right. So, yeah, so that's a big issue. So I was um, thinking about this as well. And you have to think about just the general mental health of police officers mm -hmm. because for the most part police officers are doing something that's really necessary in society and that's keeping people safe and for the most part police officers do that but think about what a police officer goes through on a day-to-day -day basis maybe they see a car accident and they see somebody that's mutilated or they see a spouse that's been beaten by their husband or something along those lines like they're witnessing the very mm -hmm. worst parts of being a human. They're seeing violence. They're seeing death. They're seeing these things. And that takes a toll. If you see these things on a day-to-day -day basis, that starts to become your reality. And that starts to shape your behavior and your actions. And there's, you know, it, with military personnel, for example, like if you're in the... Um, Navy and you go you get deployed there's breaks between these deployments so you can kind of come mm -hmm. back and recuperate from these situations whereas if you're a police officer you're seeing it every day and that takes a toll mentally and that's just another thing that I was thinking about that might be something that people need to figure out before we can you know go forward with human policing that's sustainable in the long term yeah yeah, it's like, you know, you're driving around in your squad car and you get a call in for man with a machete standing on the corner of 15th and Main. 
you got to yeah. go to 15th and Main and deal with that guy with the machete. And yeah. yeah, in theory, you can do it in all the right possible ways of being very sensitive and, you know, but in the heat of the moment, people are very human. And if, if a police officer feels threatened, then yeah. it's understandable that it oftentimes leads to bad situations. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the, I definitely have a lot of empathy for police officers. You know, my cousin's a police officer and he's a really upstanding human being. Like he is a, a really, you know, doesn't have mm -hmm. a, a biased bone in his body, like really just wants to help and protect society. And so there are a lot of officers out there like that. And mm -hmm. I think it's it's also it's tough for these officers when they see a situation like what happened with George Floyd, because it reflects so bad on all police. And it it amplifies this feeling of all cops are bad and there's even more hatred against police which kind of makes police feel like more hatred towards the people that are yelling at them and then leads to more violence. So we're in this like cycle of really being identified with one side or the other. And then that leads to more violence. And so, and I think like really of all the various factors of what the problems are, the single biggest factor from my point of view is the qualified immunity of police officers. It's the fact that when there's a super obvious clear cut case where the police officer committed a crime, that police officer is not held accountable for a number of legal reasons. So to get into the reasons like why that's the case, I think one important thing to note is that there's an interesting relationship between judges, prosecutors and police officers where they're kind of all working on the same team. They're like colleagues. So when basically if like, let's say you're a young prosecutor and you want to make a name for yourself, you need a steady flow of new cases of criminals to prosecute. That's how you make a name for yourself and you have a high rate of, of success and all that. So that means you're, you're depending on police officers to come to you with new cases. So you, you're literally, your career depends on your relationship with police. And then when those very same officers are charged with a crime, what's your incentive to go hard on them? You have no incentive to go hard on them. In fact, you're incentivized to go as easy on them as possible so that your career will be better and you can continue to have a steady flow of new cases brought by the police. So there's this, wow. there's this real issue of incentive alignment. And because of that, it's very rare for a cop to be charged with a crime. So to put some, some numbers on it, um, there were, from 2013 to 2019, there were 7,663 times where a citizen was killed by a police officer. Only 48 times did an officer get convicted. So 48 out of almost 8,000. Like, that's wow. not even 1% of the time where a police officer kills a citizen does he get charged with a crime. And yeah, maybe 90% of the time it was somewhat justified, but it seems ridiculous that, that, uh, that it would be so low. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's actually pretty mind boggling to me. I didn't realize that it was that skewed. It's, it's in incredibly rare to have a police officer be charged. So we already talked about prosecutors and judges and that aspect of it. The other aspect of it is unions. 
police unions are some of the most powerful organizations in this country. They're really powerful for politicians because they're an important voting block. So every politician is going to want to cater to the police unions. They're also important in that they actually negotiate with prosecutors and lawmakers and judges for their specific rights. So for instance, in some states, they'll negotiate how long after a shooting do you have to submit your report? Is it immediately? Is it 24 hours after? Is it 48 hours after? And the longer it is, the more you can kind of concoct a fake story. Uh, okay. And they'll, they'll also negotiate things like, you know, in what cases can a trial get thrown out or dismissed? So if there's not enough evidence and the certain ways that the laws are written. So it really yeah. is just totally different from like a civilian getting tried in court. Yeah. Wow. And I actually saw something else that might add to this, um, this preferential treatment that you're talking about is there were, there's uh, mug shots of a couple of police officers that used deadly force during the protests. Um, and they were cleanly showered in suits and ties in their mug shots. So they had time to go home, get ready and prepare. Yeah. And that plays a huge role. Just the perception, even if it's a jury or a judge that doesn't know the police officer, it still helps out and gives yeah. these officers, uh, you know, a better chance at getting through unscathed. Yeah. It's, it's like two different tracks of the justice mm -hmm. system. The other thing I would say that's a big factor that people have brought up is that there is a history of racist policing and it goes all the way back to, you know, the early days of America, right after the Emancipation Proclamation, when all black Americans were granted freedom, there were a lot of local and state governments that immediately set up laws and police forces to try to limit the freedoms of black Americans. And one thing that's important to know about America's policing system is that it's hyper local. It's not organized largely at like a state or a federal level. It's, it's thousands and thousands of local police departments that are elected by local, you know, local voters, local officials manage over them. And so if you happen to live in a place that's not very progressive, where the voters still have some racist biases and where maybe the elected officials have some ra racist biases, then you're going to have policies that are really oppressive to African-Americans. And, you know, we've seen that there's this one example that I think really highlights the history of this. And it was brought up by this this uh, researcher for for equality. And so there was a an indentured servant, John Ponch, who was an African-American. And then he had, was with two other indentured servants, a Dutchman and a Scotsman. And all three of them escaped from their indentured servitude and went up to the north. I think they were in Virginia and they went up to the north. They all three of them got caught. But the response wasn't the same for all three of them. They basically only gave four years of additional indentured servitude to the Dutchman and the Scotsman, who were white, whereas they gave indefinite indentured servitude to the, the black man, John Ponch. So he essentially had to be an indentured servant his whole life. And wow. this just sort of shows the strategy that was sort of starting to form, which is that 
like by basically dividing the interests of poor black Americans from the interests of poor white Americans, the ruling class was better able to sort of control the people. So it's basically like a, a strategy of like keep people somewhat divided so that, you know, they can't just overwhelm the, the ruling class. And, you know, I think there is some some element of that where even now it's like if all the the poor white Trump supporters realized that they were on the same side as the poor, you know, black and, and uh, Hispanic communities, then it would be very easy to pass legislation like universal basic income, like Medicare for all, like, you know, uh, uh, college for all. But because they're divided and you have all of these like, you know, low income whites who have been basically trained oftentimes by the media and culture and all these other aspects to be suspicious of minorities and immigrants. And we see it so much coming from the, the Trump administration that there's this now divide. So it's really hard for everyone who's in the like 90% of Americans to come together and vote for major, uh, you know, progressive legislature like universal basic income and Medicare for all. So I think that's like, it's, it's something that doesn't get talked about a lot, but it, in my mind, that is the single biggest way that we can solve the issue of policing and race inequality in America is by passing legislation that allows for a, you know, basically like a better starting point for everyone. So that, because if you grow up in one of these underprivileged communities, oftentimes you can either, you know, have basically no good way of making money or you like sell drugs or try to steal stuff. And it's hard to get out of that cycle of poverty. But if everyone can depend on a certain amount of money per month and they know they have some medical care and they know they can at least, you know, go to a state college for, for free and not get into major debt, that will just create a better situation for all Americans. Um, so I think that's like, in my mind, like that would be the single greatest thing we can do to improve equality is pass legislation like that. But people yeah. will have to re realize they're all on the same side for that to happen, which is the challenge. It is the challenge. And I think this movement that's happening right now is opening the conversation. It's getting people to realize that this isn't a, this isn't just, it didn't start with George, George Floyd. Mm -hmm. It started hundreds of years ago. Like this, and like you said, this, this starts from the very fundamental parts of our, um, our laws that, that lead to these sort of emergent properties of the system that these incentives just create this sort of behavior that lead to certain groups of people being oppressed for a very long period of time. And naturally there's a lot of anger that's built up over the, t over this time period. So mm -hmm. we're just kind of seeing the results of it and maybe now with it being in the public eye, people are going to have conversations with each other and maybe we can start to see eye to eye a little bit more. Or maybe it's dividing everyone a little bit more. You know, right. I'm, I'm curious what your, your thoughts are. Like, are people having conversations from either side now? Or is, it, is this an even bigger echo chamber? Like, are we just yeah. going to have... Yeah. So this, this is something that concerns me because a lot of the, 
the language used on the side of the protesters is divisive language, even though it comes from the right place. And I very much believe in the cause. I mm -hmm. worry about the language that's being used. And specifically, you know, things like abolish the police or is, defund, the police, or defund yeah. the police. So those are, they sound really extreme. And I actually want to talk about why defund the police isn't as radical as it sounds but why it actually, it still stokes potentially too much divisiveness, even if it is somewhat of a yes. reasonable approach. So to be clear, defund the police does not mean abolish the police. It doesn't mean get rid of all police officers tomorrow. What it means is l lessen the funding that police officers get and reallocate that funding to social yeah. workers and people that know how to deal with tricky situations in a peaceful way so education yeah exactly so here just to put some numbers on why this is such a big issue in minneapolis in december of 2019 they increased the police budget by 10 million dollars a year to 193 million dollars for the police force now compare that to they only spent two hundred fifty thousand dollars for helping at-risk youth they only spent $400,000 for crime prevention. So when you look at, and then, you know, in LA, more than half of the budget go, of the entire city of LA goes to the police force. So that's pretty incredible, like just the, the amount of spending that's going to the police. And let's be clear, there are certain situations that you need a police officer for. If someone comes into your house in the middle of the night, and you're locked in your bedroom terrified while they steal stuff and threaten the life of you and your family, you need the police for those situations. Mm -hmm. But you don't need the police for many situations that they're currently being used for. It's like if, you, if you, all you have is a hammer, that every problem becomes a nail. So if all you have is this well-funded, warrior-style, macho police force, then every time they encounter some depressed, anguished drug addict, or a domestic dispute that's really emotional, or uh, a mentally handicapped person who doesn't really know where he is and isn't good at responding to commands, then you're going to have a situation that leads to violence, whereas that is totally the wrong approach. So I actually am in support of defunding the police partially. I don't think we should defund them entirely. But I think it really it's like reallocating or re-optimizing the budget would be like a more positive word, but it's obviously not as like viral as like defunding. <laughs> right. Yeah. And it's caused a lot of, um, that's causing a lot of divisiveness when the Minneapolis mayor was basically, oh, yeah. he walked out and was being yelled at by protesters. But in that situation, the protesters basically said what they meant was abolish the police. Like they said, right. we don't want no more police. Yeah, so, they were they were using defund the police, but it was it was more along the lines of abolish the police. And right. So we're creating this situation where some, like this mayor who is very progressive for the most part, um, is out there being yelled at by protesters, saying, "Will you like basically tell us that you're going to abolish the police because we don't want them anymore?" that's not the right approach, I don't think. And right. like you said, we need police in a lot of situations. So how do we strike the balance of what we're doing? And 
maybe reduced budgets to um, law enforcement agencies would create a little bit more of a, you know, a better situation where you don't necessarily hire as many people. Maybe you just want more qualified people that go through a more rigorous training um, program to get into the pro into the police force, and that could lead to a lot of really good things. But we need to have the conversations, and we need to be open about what we're actually saying because these these short sensational um, titles are kind of dividing people even more. And I think yeah. that's an issue. And sort of like we said on the future of podcasting, we need to have long form conversations where we can get into the nuance of pretty heated discussions, yelling at people or just shutting people down is not the right way to do this. Like we need to have open long form conversations about this. Yeah, definitely. I, I am worried that it seems like there's, you know, on the, on the left, there's this feeling that every police officer is evil you know, all cops are bastards, we got to burn it down, tear down the system, you know, tear down the white capitalist structures. And I very much empathize with that sentiment. My, my issue is just with the words that are being chosen, because they're words that are destructive rather than constructive. And I think what we need now is a constructive mindset. Like, I love the way uh, Killer Mike said it, and his impassioned speak, like we need to plot, plan, strategize, organize, mobilize. I love that because that is a constructive way of framing the issue. And it's all about action. It's about what can we do to improve the system? It's not about like, you know, putting blame on someone or like, oh, we're great. We hate them. They're evil. We need to tear them down. It's like, look, here's what we need to do. We need to plot, plan, strategize, organize, mobilize. And fortunately, it feels like we're finally turning the corner to doing that. The protest is really the first part of the process of change. It feels like there is a wave of change that is building and it's not something that's going to be easily stopped by the people who are in power. So, you know, and, and it's it's shown by the decrease in support for Trump, too. Like I've noticed Recently, there have been some cracks in the facade of Trumpistan. So there used to be 97% Republican support for Trump. So among the Republican Party, 97% of Republicans supported Trump. Most recently, they just came out with a poll, only 84% of Republicans support Trump. So wow. I think that that's a pretty meaningful difference. And also I noticed, you know, Trump went to basically, you know, put tear gas out so he could go to that church and then he held up the Bible. And normally that stuff works for him. Like for whatever reason, evangelicals and other people are kind of fooled by it and they think it's like an authentic show of religiosity, which I don't know how they're fooled by that. But this time it seems like people realized how much of a photo op it was, especially side by side where Biden was like actually praying in a church and you can tell he was really in there you know, talking mm. to his, you know, his inner God. Yeah. Um, so I think that's major. And I think one person pointed this out that Trump has kind of been running on the platform of law and order. And that can work if you're a challenger. 
like Nixon won on that campaign of being the law and order president. But that's because he was challenging a president that was not able to secure a law and order. What we have now is a law and order president who isn't able to secure law and order, like there's still looting and stuff going on. And also he's totally out of touch with what the people want and what the people, how the people feel about equality. So I am actually more optimistic than I ever have been about this, this wave of change actually culminating with Trump getting defeated and a more enlightened version of America emerging beyond. And I want to just give one additional point of optimism because there's so much pessimism going around right now. It's important to note where there's optimism. And that is that a new bill is being introduced. Just last night they announced it's being introduced by Kamala Harris and Cory mm. Booker to have more accountability for police. So what they're doing is they are rewriting the law that currently protects police so they have a certain immunity against crimes that citizens do not have. So the way that the law is currently written is that police officers have to, quote, willfully deprive a person of their constitutional rights in order to be charged. They're changing that to now police ha just have to willfully or knowingly with reckless disregard, um, you know, deprive mm -hmm. a person of their constitutional rights. So it sounds like a very like, you know, uh, in the in the weeds kind of a change, but it has mm -hmm. potential huge implications because basically the way the law was written before is that unless the state specifically says you cannot tase a citizen when they're being totally compliant, then you can't charge an officer for tasing a citizen who's being totally compliant, which is obviously something that's wrong. Like there would have to be something specifically in the letter of the law that says that's not allowed for an officer to be charged. Whereas now, if this is passed, they just have to have reckless disregard for the person's well-being in order to be charged. And this is for California or the whole country? I think that I believe this is on the federal level. Um, oh, nice. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there's a lot of power that goes to the state, so it might be more of like a guidance. But right. and they're also setting up an independent review panel to decide on cases of officer misconduct. It's really good. Yeah. Awesome. So I, I have one other idea, or I, I guess I have a couple other ideas about solutions for how to improve the policing process in America. So one of them is, you know, we talked about demilitarizing the police, defunding the police, you know, without actually abolishing them. And body cameras and data science are another big potential solution. So a lot of states already have body cameras. Part of the issue now is that they're not required to have them on at all times and with all encounters. So I think if they are required at all times and there's an independent review panel to review cases of misconduct, that's a, a really good foundation to improve relations. So that would be great. We talked about police accountability. Getting out to vote is an obvious solution, right? If you can actually yeah. vote the racist officials and racist police chiefs out of office, that's huge. And, you know, part of my, uh, you know, big question is, okay, all these young people came out to protest. Will they come out to vote? Because oftentimes right. 
the young people don't come out to vote. So that's what I'm really wondering, especially for November. And Can then, we keep up the momentum for another you know, six months? Right. Or, I mean, I yeah, look, like look at how many people campaigned for Bernie and were in the streets and at all of his rallies. And then he only won one state. So it's like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, so it's hard to predict until the election actually happens. My hope is that this will prompt far more young people to vote. And then the final uh, solution that is probably the most creative solution that I came across is something that was tried by the city of Camden in Pennsylvania. And what they did is, you know, they had a limited budget. They had a lot of crime and they had police officers that were getting a lot of misconduct violations. So because they couldn't increase their budget, they decided to try a new strategy. And that is that they hired way more police officers, but just had all their police officers be part time. So what that allowed is that they allowed local citizen police officers to be embedded within these local communities. And then anytime there's a crime near those local police officers, the closest ones would just go and deal with the issue. And this was a this resulted in far fewer crimes and far fewer uh, instances where officers had to use force because you have people who are parts of the community doing the policing. And they made a big effort to hire a lot of minorities as these new officers. And they didn't have to pay as much overtime pay because they're sort of spreading out the work among many officers. So I could envision a future scenario where if you're an upstanding citizen, if you've done like combat training, and if you've also done training for dealing with, you know, mentally handicapped and, and uh, drug addicted people, then you can be a local citizen police officer. And if something happens in your neighbor's house, you can go and, and jump to action and go help them out. And you kind of all know each other. So it's like sort of like an official like neighborhood watch style situation. And maybe you get some special tax credit or you actually get a salary in, in uh, return mm -hmm. for helping out the community. Yeah. So, and maybe some community members are, you know, they specialize in mental health and other ones specialize with domestic disputes. And so you can imagine this type of situation where it's not like, you know, all we have is a hammer. So every problem becomes a nail and you've got like a small number of overworked, stressed out police officers, many of whom have drinking problems and, you know, have seen some of the most horrific things. Rather than that, you sort of spread out the onus across the population and within the local communities. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, really good. Um, well, do you have anything else you want to discuss before getting into the scenarios? The only final thing I'll say is that if you are stopped by the police, there are some magic words you can use. And it's important everyone knows these magic words. Officer, am I free to go? So remember those words, because there are so many situations where the police will keep asking you stuff, they'll make it seem like you can't leave. But if you ask them, officer, am I free to go? They have to answer you. And either you're free to go because you're not being charged with a crime, or they have to tell you what crime you're being charged with. And in either case, that's better off than just being in no man's land and not really being able to leave. 
But the other thing I would say is that you should only do that sort of like you should do whatever possible to not have a confrontational vibe between yourself and a police officer. So one of the mistakes I see people often have is they just instinctively really despise the police. So as soon as an officer gets to their window, if they're pulled over, they have this, you know, antagonistic mentality of like, oh, why were you pulling me over? Oh, you, you have like, and then they'll say license and registration. And you say, why are you pulling me over? And then they'll say license and registration. And then you'll say, you have to tell me, why are you pulling me over? And then they'll say, step out of the car, please. And that's like the classic blunder is like you set it up to be antagonistic rather than just being a respectful person from the beginning and just seeing where it plays. And, you know, obviously there are situations where like it's going to end badly regardless because you're dealing with an officer that just is not the right sort of officer for that encounter. Or just not the right person. Not the right person. Police police officer. Yeah. I'm not, so this isn't going to work in all cases, but by and large, if you're respectful, you just, you, you call them officer, you just answer with yes or no questions. And then if it gets to a certain point where you feel uncomfortable and you'd prefer to leave and you really haven't done anything wrong, just use those magic words, officer, am I free to go? Yeah, I mean, that that hopefully helps in a lot of situations. And hopefully after a lot of these new laws are passed, then that has the same effect for every person in the population. Because I think right. the, issue, the issue is these, you can't say the same thing as a, a white dude in a relatively nice car or versus, you know, you can't say the same thing as a black person in sort of a rundown car and expect the same results. So like, right. you can't expect the same results. But uh, there are best practices no matter right. who you are. Ex- exactly. Like keeping your hands on the steering wheel is another one. So they know yeah. you're not reaching for a weapon. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Do you want to get into the scenarios? Let's do it. Madamore, what do you think for the worst case scenario? Worst case scenario. My worst case scenario is that we take the identity politics aspects of this movement too far and that it results in more divisiveness rather than unification. I'm not saying this is most likely because I do see a groundswell that may overtake the people who are, you know, not for these protests, but the way that they're portrayed is a little bit divisive. There is a bit of an us versus them mentality. Like the vilification of police officers, I think is really dangerous because it makes police want to act more violently against protesters. And likewise, the vilification of black people by police is also horrible. So on both sides, we really need to have more of a higher level mentality of it's not about just like me as a protester or me as a police officer, but recognizing that we're all complex human beings that are a product of our environment and our what our desires are. And, and if we can have more understanding and focus on solving the system and what actionable changes can we make in the system to create change, 
then that will be far better than if we really focus on the identity aspect of it. That's part of the risk of any movement where it's it's rooted in identity. So whether it's black identity, female identity, LGBT identity, whatever it is, that can be a really strong lever for creating change. But you don't want that identity to engulf you. And, you know, I've heard like Zuby and um, Ed Lattimore and a lot of prominent uh, black Americans on Twitter who I really respect they often talk about how dangerous having a victim mentality is. And if you're a black, you know, if you're a black person growing up in America and you're taught that, you know, your people have been prosecuted and they continue to be prosecuted and the police are evil and you need to watch mm -hmm. yourself, that creates a certain mental model. Whereas mm -hmm. if you're constantly taught from a young age that all men are created equal and women are created equal, you know, everyone deserves the same rights. These are the reasons it's not working. Like we need to, there's reasons we can fix this and we can fix this. We just need right. to take action. Like constructive versus destructive. Constru exactly. Constructive solutions and focusing on universal principles rather than identity principles. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in the worst case, it, some people have said a civil war could happen. I think that's a little ridiculous, but... It's yeah. hard to imagine a totally peaceful transition from Trump to Biden. Yeah. So that's yeah. my other concern is that if all the, the right, you know, gun toting Republicans get all riled up and then Trump makes them feel like the election got stolen from them, then, you know, that could lead to violence. It could be protests in a very different, a very different kind of protest. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I am concerned about the identity aspect of it, but I very much feel like this is a movement that needs to happen. And I think the mm -hmm. change that's about to happen is, is important for not just minority communities, but for all Americans and just improving our system. And America's kind of had this like violent mentality of like, you know, no one loves war or policing or violent video games or you know, violent mm -hmm. sports as much as Americans. There's just something about that, like, cowboy gunslinging ethos. But we kind of need to grow up a little bit as a country and be more like, you know, Sweden or some of these Scandinavian countries that just really value all people mm -hmm. and that value different types of skill sets, including dealing with people with mental issues and addiction issues and not mm -hmm. just using a strong arm for every solution. Right. Yeah, I think that's really good. It seems like the United States as a society is in its adolescence, right? Like we're kind of at a turning point where do does America become an enlightened person, a more educated person, or a more enlightened society, or in a wiser society, or does it kind of descend into anarchy and chaos? And that's kind of where my worst case is. Yeah. There, and there's, I think there's two sides of this. There's the authoritarian left and the authoritarian right. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried about the abolish the police. I'm worried about that general sentiment because that leads to anarchy. That leads to private militaries. That leads to, again, the people that have the most money can afford protection but what is the law if 
police are abolished? Is there law if right. the police are abolished? <laughs> and it, it's it's very worrying to think of the worst case. I don't necessarily think this is the most likely kind of you know as always, but this this could get bad if it's approached in the wrong way. If it's just descend everything into chaos and we burn down the whole system. Mm -hmm. So that's that could lead to you know general. Um, I've I've heard a lot of people saying that communism is the answer, and that might lead to interesting policing where it ends up being more authoritarian than it is currently and more oppressive than it is currently. Mm -hmm. And then if we talk about the authoritarian right, that's just kind of an exaggeration of where we are today. Like we're seeing in Washington, D.C., this ragtag group of people with riot gear that definitely don't even look trained. And what it seems like is like a lot mercenaries. of mercenaries. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but but it's not like they're like you look at them and they're they're older, they're a little they're out of shape. They're like they they just don't look like they're even part of a military unit. They just look like people that volunteered mm -hmm. to have riot gear and protect the White House. And that's scary because that leads to extreme militarization where there's like there's no barrier to entry. Anybody can just go in and say, "Hey, yeah, I want to do this. Give me guns. Give me riot yeah. gear. Give me tear gas, and I'm gonna protect you." Like that. That's even less accountability than police officers have. Yeah, you can only because they don't. There's no. You can yeah. only cosplay authoritarianism for so long before it becomes real authoritarianism. <laughs> right, and and that's that's what I'm worried about. I'm just I'm worried about authoritarianism in general, but that can come from both sides. Like authoritarianism can be approached from the left, from right. the right, and that's my worst case scenario. Well, what do you think about your best case? Best case scenario. My best case scenario is that there is this groundswell that's already been building, largely led by young people, progressive people, and that it's already starting to effectuate real change. And I think that it could continue and grow all the way through November and really bring us into what you mentioned earlier, like a more enlightened version of America. So I think it's pretty important that Trump gets voted out of office. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine America recovering if he's not voted out of office because, and, and by the way, like there are some things I like about what he's done and we've talked about them on this podcast. So it's not to paint everything he's done as being bad, but I think what's happening is that a lot of our institutions are crumbling because they're not having real professionals who value the Constitution, who are really good at their jobs in those roles. Instead, you're having cronies who their only real skill set is that they're, they have an undying loyalty to Trump, not to the Constitution or to America, but to a man, to Trump. Yeah. And it's like you've got these unmarked mercenaries guarding the White House rather than, you know, real Americans who are who you know salute the flag yeah and that could lead to a really bad situation 
So I think, you know, the, the best case scenario is that we avoid that future scenario and we set the stage for real progress. And frankly, I don't think America will have a good future outcome unless there is some form of universal basic income and some form of Medicare for all. So much of the social unrest right now, obviously the, the, the main part of it is the, the, you know, not being okay with racism and, and the outrage at the death of George Floyd, but a big part of it's also socioeconomic. The fact that there's not as much of a positive future that many of these people can look forward to because the way the system is set up is that it's, you know, you have to, in order to go to college, unless you're wealthy, you have to go into debt. And, you know, the credit card companies prey on you. And the, you know, the federal government is just buying all of these, you know, inflating the asset prices, which only help out the wealthy. So since the coronavirus started, there's been an even more massive wealth transfer from the working class to the people who own assets. So unless we set the ground where everyone can depend on a certain amount of payment per month, then it's hard for, for these, you know, it's hard for people to just make it in today's economy, especially given the wave of automation and all the other stuff we talk about. It's like a lot of the jobs that were lost. Yeah, we had like 5 million jobs gained this last week, you know, after the biggest loss of jobs in modern American history the previous week. So yeah, it's, it's a small win, but overall, most of those jobs are not going to come back. Uh, like they're just not. So yeah. I think we need universal basic income. We need Medicare for all. We need to invest in education. And unless we do those things, it's going to be a bad scenario for America. But in my best case scenario, this groundswell of support, not only it not only makes changes in the criminal justice system so that black Americans are treated equally by police and by the justice system, it also votes Trump out of office and sets the stage for UBI, Medicare for all, and college for all. Yeah, and then, yeah, I like that a lot. Um, so my best case is uh, fairly similar. Um, mine is just that these protests and this movement finally makes a change after so long of you know the the community the black community trying to make their voices heard um and it leads to a good situation where there is police reform not abolition of police but actually just reforming policy maybe reducing the funding and demilitarizing the police force and I think part of it is just increasing the training requirements, increasing the chance that a person that wants to be a police officer is actually a highly educated, a highly motivated person to just make society better. And we just we need to increase the barrier to entry a little bit, the same way that um, doctors have a high barrier to entry. Like, yes, there are some bad actors that slip through the cracks still, but just having a higher barrier to entry is going to make changes. I think mm. that with generally, I think bad actors are, are lazy in the way that they think. I think that it's lazy to think 
in a racist way. It's lazy to have such a closed-minded view. Whereas if there is a requirement that basically requires you to be less lazy mentally, like you need to get a bachelor's degree, for example, that automatically starts to weed out lazy thinkers. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, you know, that's, you know, that's just one aspect of it. And that's kind of in the short to medium term, we just make policy changes that make policing safer for everybody. And it, and it turns the police force into what it is actually designed to be a mm-hmm. thing to protect makes, and to serve. Yeah. And make America a safer place. And that's, that's something that I think would go a very, very long way. Um, now, long term, I sort of toyed with the idea of, well, what if, what if we had a sort of a democratic artificial intelligence that was kind of monitoring and stuff <laughs> that could go one of two ways that could be very good or very bad. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, if, if it was a more democratic AI where maybe the country is a jury, for example, like people can kind of see the decision that an AI made from a given arrest and can override this AI that could be good, but it also leads to a sort of surveillance state right. where there's cameras everywhere and there's monitoring of text messages and phone calls all the time. And yeah, It's like, be careful what you wish for. You could abolish the human police only to usher in the <laughs> AI police. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it could be the case that an AI police is much better because you mm-hmm. can, if designed well, you can totally get rid of bias in police you can also get rid of the long-term mental health consequences of seeing people die of seeing even if it's not shooting and violence but just seeing somebody that died in a car crash like that Mm -hmm. takes a toll on people but if it's ai that doesn't actually affect the emotions behind the decision making it's a purely logical thing did this person break the law yes or no okay that that's plus like as facial recognition gets so much gets better, it seems pretty impossible to get away with a crime in the mm-hmm. future. I mean, already the people who looted in Santa Monica and Fairfax and all over the country, most of them are going to get caught. It might take them a few weeks or a few months for them to go through all the data, but it's almost impossible to not get caught on camera. And we talked in the future of facial recognition about how Clearview AI now basically has a searchable image database where you just upload a shot of someone's face who was looting or whatever, you can find that person immediately. So there is way less of a need for police if we do the tech part right. But that's the big question. Can we do the tech part right? Can we do it in a way that's unbiased and in a way that we feel safe and it's not dystopic? And maybe it's not actually AI-driven policing. Maybe it's AI-assisted policing, mm-hmm. where, like you said, we can use these spatial recognition technologies to find some criminal faster. And also, how about we get rid of traffic police or, <laughs> or, <laughs> or you know, the, the police officers that will pull you over for going five over the speed limit? That seems like an unnecessary salary that it has to be paid out by certain counties or cities um i'm not saying you know that's me kind of saying abolish the traffic police (laughs) but not really i don't mean to abolish all of 
the traffic police, but I think there's a vast majority of things that police spend. Yeah, well, like drugs, for instance, legalize all drugs tomorrow, and we would need like a third of the police force that we currently have. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there besides just the criminal aspect of legalizing, it's like generally better for society and will reduce crime rates because of it because of it getting rid of the black markets in a lot of cases. Mm-hmm. It, it's just you know there that's one of the levers I think that could make huge change. Imagine how many nonviolent drug offenders there are in prisons. I don't have the yeah. number. I've seen the number before. But it's ridiculous how many are in prison for being nonviolent drug offenders. Yeah, we talk so. about that in the future of prisons. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's kind of my best case is we, we fix all the things. <laughs> fix yeah. all the, the stuff police-wise. So what do you think for the most likely? Most likely scenario. For my most likely, I think it's important to return to a concept that we've touched on multiple times in this podcast, which is that people kind of behave how you treat them. So if you treat cops as horrible, violent people, they're more likely to act that way. Likewise, if cops, you know, treat poor communities like they're crime ridden and they're evil and they're, you know, they need to be policed obsessively then they're more likely to commit crimes and they've they've actually had some interesting data where the police have pulled back on some of their efforts like in new york they stop stop and frisk and then they did not see any increase in crime in another in another state they they like had less police uh going around and then they saw a drop in crime so Hmm. there is this interesting situation where if you treat people as good human beings who know what they're doing and you take a more human approach, you know, like for the drug situation, like rather than criminalizing drugs and framing it as a war on drugs, if you frame it as a war on addiction and it's not the person's fault, it's more about how can you give them the right resources so they can recover from their addiction and you let drugs be legal, but you give them the resources so if they want to recover, they can get the support they need. If we treated more aspects of society like that, and we, you know, people who are criminals, if you're like a 17, 18 year old, 19 year old kid, and you robbed some, some liquor store or a gas station or something, I don't think you're hopeless. I think you are, a, you're grew up in a really tough environment. And if we can properly educate people and treat them with dignity and respect and give people a second chance, then people are more likely to behave well. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's, you know, positive reinforcement, the carrot is much more impactful than the stick. So I think we need to move in that direction as a country. I also think that sort of like when you go into a black hole, once you cross the event horizon, there's no going back. And I think that is also the case with equality we've already crossed the event horizon where the fight for equality has begun. And I don't think it's going to end until we have true equality. Now it it could yin yang, at least quality of opportunity, not equality of outcome, Mm -hmm. but I think it will yin and yang back and forth a little bit over the next X amount of years. 
but it does to me seem inevitable in the most likely scenario that 100 years from now, 50 years from now, you know, whatever number it is, it's going to be totally uninteresting what race you have. It's like Sam Harris talks about your race should be like your hair color. Like it has no real, it's not like you have like certain pride of like, oh yeah, brown haired people unite. <laughs> it's like, oh, I just happen to have brown hair. And oh, by the way, I also like, uh, you know, unicycling and, um, you know, amateur <laughs> baseball. Like you just, it's just like you're a human being who has all of these various interests and mm-hmm. it's not so much rooted in identity. We've actually gotten beyond identity. And I think not only is that the scenario that we want to achieve, I think that is the most likely scenario. Yeah, I, I actually agree. I'm optimistic that we have passed the event horizon, like you've said. But, um, well, at least we're close to the event horizon because I think if, if we continue the momentum for the next month and make it clear that Americans won't stand for this inequality anymore. It's not, it's not going to continue beyond the next. Well, I think there will be residual effects until everyone who is currently racist is actually dead. I don't think, I don't think that there will be a lot of newborns and a lot of people that grow up in today's society that can reasonably be racist. Right. Yeah, it's a and generational divide more than anything. Agreed. And that's part of the problem. Part of the problem is the political realm is very aged. There's mm-hmm. a, there are a lot of old people. The two, I mean, Biden and Trump are the two oldest people that will have ever been president. doesn't matter who's elected. They will, you know, they're, they're both the two oldest people. And Elon Musk said we're kind of in a gerontocracy on oh, Twitter. Yeah. I was like, yes. And he said I, the gerontocracy is out of touch with the people. Yes. I love that. It, it, and because every person I talk to is not racist. I think there's just like this, this, or this small minority of people who are currently in power who have these thoughts. Yeah. And that's the problem. But these people are going. Well, it's also the the conservatives are gripped in fear by what they see on Fox News and Mm. just shot after shot of the looting, and they're they're afraid for their lives. Their fear is being weaponized. Yeah. And yeah, so yeah, but I agree with you. It's like I I can't think of any like young people who have like a that like outdated like racist sort of mentality. It, It just seems like it's going to go by the wayside because especially if you grow up in the digital internet era and you have access to all the world's information, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible to not realize that all people are the same at their fundamental nature. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas I feel like to be racist, you really have to grow up in like a very specific environment where you're in a bubble and you don't really see what's happening outside of that bubble. And that bubble mm-hmm. starts to become just part of your mental model for the world. But yes. when you live in an open internet world, it's really hard to have that. That's, yeah. that's part of why we go so hard against like China for having the bubble of information because it right. leads to more feelings of identity and divisiveness. So as long yeah. as we have an open internet 
open conversation, I think we will get to real equality yeah. in America. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And there's just one other aspect of my likely scenario that is maybe less rosy. And I think there is going to be a breakdown of society in some sense. And we're kind of going through that breakdown. 2020 is that breakdown. But I think it can go further. And I think there can be much more damage mm -hmm. that will be done. And I think there will be much more damage that's done before these positive changes are actually seen. Because the gerontocracy we were talking about, that is not going to go down without a fight. And that's what these protests are. And mm -hmm. that's why... That's why sometimes it escalates to violence because there is an oppressive nature to it and a violent nature to it. But there has to be some sort of clash before we can get to the future we want to see. That's what I generally think. Yeah. And maybe that's maybe that's outdated. Maybe I am I have more violent thought you know, I don't know if that's right. Maybe there is a peaceful way to get through this. But just looking at history, it doesn't seem like there has been many huge reforms, huge changes that didn't take place peacefully, like the mm -hmm. Revolutionary War that literally founded America as we know it is one of, you know, that's something that... It's a situation where, a, a, you know, a young citizen got hit with the butt of a rifle from a law enforcement officer, and that's what sparked the... Revolutionary yeah. War, which is very similar to what's happening now. Wow. So, yeah. So I think I think that's pretty much it. Um, but I I don't want. At least I don't think we should expect it to be an entirely peaceful transition to the future we want to see. Yeah, I mean there are some topics where we feel purely positive, some topics that are purely negative. This feels like a situation where there's an e evenly distributed possible futures where it could get really bad. Like mm -hmm. the protests could play right into the authoritarian hand of Trump and he could have a strong response and mm -hmm. that could happen. Um, or it could, you know, the Republicans and Trump are actually really good at responding in an agile way to keep themselves in power. So it could also be that they make the political calculus that it's better to push for reform now because that's the main chance they have at getting reelected. And we could have change even with Trump in power, even though it seems like a paradox. Or yeah. we could have like the full sweeping groundswell that puts Biden in power. Hopefully he has a really good VP. Hopefully we start to repair the, the state that's been been damaged. And so, yeah, there's a lot of ways it could go. It's by no means is this guaranteed one way or the other. And I think the best chance we have is, again, not to view things by like us versus them or like horizontal level thinking, but think of it in like a higher dimensional thinking. Like it's basically should be the high level minded people against the low level minded, like divisive, barbaric mentality people rather than being about identity. Like well, yeah, I think that's good. I mean, there's so much more to discuss here and we're going to keep on this and we'll see how our nation and the world develops in the future. But for now, thank you all for listening. This has been the future of policing. Thank you, Justin. And we'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future.
as the free.